sometimes there are television series that enjoy a good amount of success and interest, but then they are eventually canceled. Viewers became interested in the characters and the storyline and so on, and then all of a sudden, the production is stopped, the show is canceled, and the story stays in a kind of suspended state. Now, this is why when there are occasional reboots where the story picks up where it left off and so on, people often become excited because the story is going to continue. And I think for us, there's a certain sense in which as we come to the book of Acts, we should have that kind of sense that this is kind of like a reboot. Because we finished volume one, the Gospel of Luke, and now we come to Luke's second volume, the book of Acts. We finished volume one back in January 2018, January 26th, 2018 to be specific. And now today we begin our study of the book of Acts on April 9th, 2023. We're giving attention to the second volume that Luke wrote And he wrote it with the initial recipient being a man by the name of Theophilus. Now, if you were to go to the book of Acts, and you read through the book of Acts, and you imagine yourself to be Theophilus, by the time you get to the end of the book of Acts, there is a measure of closure and open-endedness. There is closure because the same Jesus who said, as is recorded and communicated by the angel in Luke 24, verse 7, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again, it came to pass. Jesus suffered on the cross, but then he was alive. Even by the time you get to the end of the book of Luke, he's resurrected and ascended. But there's still some open-endedness. Jesus told his disciples that it was necessary not only that the Son of Man would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. You see that in Luke chapter 24, verse 46. But it was also necessary that repentance and the remission of sins be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Luke 24, verse 47. See, Luke records Jesus saying that. But in the first volume, he didn't record the apostles or the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ doing that. Jesus also spoke about the disciples waiting in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, a reference to the Holy Spirit. But you don't know what that looks like. If you just finished the Gospel of Luke, you don't know what is it going to look like when the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit comes. What difference will the Holy Spirit make? What will it look like when he empowers these apostles? You don't know that if all you have is the Gospel of Luke because there's a measure of open-endedness. The book of Acts answers those open-ended questions and much more. As we get into the book of Acts, as we trace the history, the spirit-inspired history that's found in this book, we will see many things. We'll see the plan of God unfold. We will see the person and work of Christ proclaimed as Peter preaches Christ, as Paul preaches Christ, and so on. We'll see the difference the Holy Spirit makes in the lives of the church and in the lives of the people of God. We'll see initial Christian martyrdoms. We'll see the unstoppable spread of the gospel. We'll see the origin of the Apostle Paul. Imagine if you didn't have the book of Acts, as many have stated. And all of a sudden you get to John and you finish John and then you read Romans and you're like, who's Paul? Because you don't have his origin story by the time you get to Romans. You get his origin story in the book of Acts. You also kind of get it a little bit in 1 Timothy 1 and you get it a little bit in Galatians 1, but you get the point. As we go through the book of Acts, we'll see initial challenges that the church faced. We'll be reminded of the costliness of following Christ. We will see the inception of the work of missions, the priority of church planting and the establishing of elders in local churches. 
as we make our way well beyond the borders of Israel to different geographic locations as the gospel goes from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And there's so much to say, but we'll continue to create a little bit of context as we get into verse 1. We begin in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, where we read, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. So Luke begins, if you look at verse 1, he begins by referencing the former account. The former account is the Gospel of Luke. The second account, this account, is the book of Acts. Now we don't know the exact time frame between the two releases, if you will, of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, but we know that they both had the same divine author, God. They both had the same human author, Luke. And they both had the same initial recipient, a man by the name of Theophilus. Now, unlike the epistles, you go through the epistles, like Romans and Corinthians and so on, with the exception of, say, Hebrews, um, you can see who the author is of the epistle that you're reading. But when this volume was written, at least within the volume itself, like the Gospel of Luke, Luke does not identify himself as the author. So how do we know that Luke is the one who actually wrote the book of Acts? Now, if you would ask critical scholarship... They'd basically say what they always say, critical scholarship, a.k.a. kind of liberal scholarship. They would say, Luke didn't write it. That's pretty much their default when you ask these kind of questions. But when you look at the evidence externally and internally, I think it's overwhelmingly and convincingly the case that Luke is the author of both the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. But we'll give attention to the argument for his authorship of the Book of Acts. Briefly, if you were to look at early church history, you'd see that there wasn't a dispute. It was like pretty much clearly cut, clearly understood that Luke was the author of the book of Acts. You could see that from the writings of early church fathers like Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, Origen, Eusebius. You see other historical works, the Muratorian Canon, the Anti-Marcionite Prologue, all speaking to the fact that Luke was the author of this book. Secondly, Luke fits the bill when you look at the internal evidence within the New Testament. As we go through the book of Acts, and if you were to read through the book of Acts, you would see a shift in the language that's used in Acts chapter 16. The author of the book of Acts joined Paul's apostolic missionary journey in Acts chapter 16. In Acts 16, we see the author go from using third-person language, they, to using first-person plural words like we and us. Now, as a little bit of a cultural apologetic aside, those were accurate uses of pronouns because they fit reality. I think that bears saying. Luke wasn't using the words we and us in referencing himself. He was referencing the group that he was with and his co-laborers. A little bit of another, a little bit of an aside, a little bit further on. In the New Testament, as you go through it, you could see that in the case of demonic possession, there could be, in many cases, demonic um, possessions where multiple demons inhabit a person. In Luke chapter 8, verse 2, for instance, we see that Mary Magdalene was possessed by seven demons. We go on in the book of uh, the Gospels, in the book of Luke, we could see that the man of Gadarenes had been possessed by many demons. In Mark's Gospel, when Jesus asked the name of the unclean spirit, the response came, My name is Legion, for we are many. But back to the text. 
just to argue for Luke's authorship, you would see if you go through the book of Acts, you say, okay, whoever the author was of the book of Acts, he joined Paul's apostolic journey in Acts chapter 16. And Paul, uh, or Luke, namely, would fit that bill. Furthermore, just as an aside, you go through the book of Acts, and you see that whoever is writing the book of Acts, apparently, when you kind of look at the details, was with Paul during his first imprisonment. Therefore, when you look at Paul's prison epistles, those epistles written during his first Roman imprisonment, you'd expect him to reference the author of Acts, at least at some point in those prison epistles, and he does. He references Luke. There are more arguments that can be given. But suffice it to say, I'll just say at this point, the case is, I think, pretty clear. External evidence and internal evidence that Luke is the author of the book of Acts. Now, Luke didn't include an about the author section in the book of Acts. He doesn't tell you a little bit about himself. But when you go through the New Testament, you can see a little bit about him. Not much, but you see a little bit. You start putting these details together, and I think they're quite impressive, the details. You look in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, and you find out that Luke was a physician. Paul refers to him as the beloved physician. You look at Philemon, verse 24, and you see that he was one of Paul's fellow co-laborers. You look at Colossians, chapter 4, verses 10 through 14, and you see that Luke apparently was a Gentile. He wasn't a Jew. He wasn't one of Paul's fellow co-laborers who were of the circumcision. You look at 2 Timothy, chapter 4, as Paul is getting ready to give his life for Christ. And he says, only Luke is with me. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. And you put these details together and you're like, okay, that's who Luke was. He was a faithful friend. He was a co-laborer. He was a physician. That's who this man was. He was also a recognized writer of Scripture. See, when we come to the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts, we're saying, okay, Luke was carried along by the Holy Spirit and he just didn't write his own man-made opinion. He wrote Scripture. And Luke was even recognized by the Apostle Paul to be such a one. If you read 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, specifically verse 18, you see the Apostle Paul quotes Scripture twice. He quotes Deuteronomy and he quotes Luke chapter 10, verse 7, referring to both as Scripture. So Paul thought of Luke as a spirit-inspired writer of Scripture. You go through the book of Acts and you also come to see that Luke was a historian of first rank. That's the kind of language that was used by Sir William Ramsey. He was an archaeologist as well as a scholar and a professor who approached Luke's account with great skepticism. He thought Luke's account was a second century composition. It wasn't written in the first century. And he said as an archaeologist that he never saw it as evidence, as trustworthy for for revealing first century conditions. That is, until he started putting it to the test. And through years of studying and the expeditions that he went on, he came to find, to use language that he used in one of his writings, that there were reasons for placing the author of Acts among the historians of first rank. In other words, when you walk through the book of Acts, you're going to see tenacious attention to detail. And Luke wasn't writing such detail for detail's sake. He wasn't accurate for accuracy's sake. The reason why he was accurate, if you want to know at the end of the day, is he's writing, carried along by the Holy Spirit. Why is he writing with such accuracy? Of course, he just wanted to be accurate. He wanted to tell the truth and so on. But if you look at Luke chapter 1, verse 4, when he's writing to Theophilus, he wanted Theophilus to know the certainty of the things that he had been instructed about. See, God, by his grace, had Luke... Give such attention to detail 
so that you might know the certainty of the things that you're being taught from the word of God. It's not accuracy for accuracy's sake. It's accuracy for your sake and my sake by the grace of God. So you're not supposed to stand on the shifting sand of man's opinions. Nor are you to stand on the sinking sand of man-made traditions. You are to stand on the verifiable and trustworthy spirit-inspired word of God. And as Luke writes, there's great attention to detail which speaks to the veracity and the truthfulness of this work. Now there's the recipient. So Luke is the author, but then there's recipient. Again, look at verse 1. The former account I made, O Theophilus. So the book of Acts would go to all the church, but most immediately it would go to a man by the name of Theophilus. Now, if you were to compare the opening prologue in Luke's gospel, you find that he addresses this man as most excellent Theophilus. Doesn't do that here. Why? Does Luke not think that Theophilus is most excellent anymore? Was there a little bit of a falling out? The likely reason is because Theophilus was a man who was a Roman magistrate of some kind. And Theophilus was likely either a new believer or at least a seeker, if you will. And Luke is writing to him in that first account, and he recalls him most excellent Theophilus, paying formal respect to the dignity of Theophilus' office. But by the time the second volume comes along, he could be more informal without being disrespectful. So Theophilus was a Roman magistrate. We see that title, Most Excellent, used a little bit later on in the book of Acts with respect to Felix and Festus. You'll see that as we go on, Lord willing. And some people think, I think erroneously, that Theophilus, whose name means lover of God or beloved of God, is actually not a person but representative of the churches, representative of the people of God. I do not think that's the case, particularly because he's identified as most excellent Theophilus in Luke's account, the first volume, which speaks to his office. But I think here we find a little bit of application for us. I think there's great instruction here in Luke's example. Namely, don't overlook your Theophilus. Look at the attention that Luke paid to make sure that this man was well instructed with reliable truth. As I said before, Theophilus was either a new believer or he was somebody that was interested in the things of Christ. And Luke wanted him to know the certainty about the things that he had heard. He wanted him to know that Jesus Christ had died and that he rose from the grave and that there were eyewitnesses and so on. He wanted a reliable account given to this man. And he didn't stop with volume one. He went on and provided him with volume two. What an encouragement for us. I just want to encourage you. Don't get so caught up in wanting to save the culture or win the world that you miss the Theophilus that's right in front of you. Don't get caught up in wanting to win the neighborhood that you miss your home. Give your best, I would argue. I would exhort you to the discipleship opportunities that are right before you. And maybe as you give your best to those opportunities that are right before you, God will use them in great ways for others as well. That's what we see here. This was for immediately who? Theophilus. The Gospel of Luke was immediately for Theophilus. But as Luke is writing, carried along by the Holy Spirit, it was going to be of much greater use than just being for Theophilus alone. I do also want to encourage you to embrace the conviction that drove Luke's action. Luke didn't believe the old adage, ignorance is bliss. He saw ignorance as a malady to be remedied by instruction. And he saw instruction as the route to God-granted certainty. 
So I want to encourage you, where you have opportunity, impart biblical history, like the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts. Teach, as Luke did in the former account, about all that Jesus began both to do and teach. And may the result, by God's grace, be spirit-granted certainty. Still in verse 1, I want to call your attention to something else in verse 1 that I find amazing. Look at the language here. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus, what? Began both to do and to teach. So if Luke's gospel is all that Jesus began to do and teach, and this is the second volume, the implication is that the book of Acts is what Jesus continued to do and teach. If you see the book of Acts through that lens, I think it will fire you up as you go through the book of Acts. That's why some people have argued that the, book, the title for the book, The Acts of the Apostles, is not arguably the best title. Some people have said The Acts of the Holy Spirit would be a better title. I think in light of verse 1, you could argue for The Acts of Jesus Christ. You could extend it if you want. The Acts of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit and through His church. And that would really kind of catch the essence of the book of Acts. But the book of Acts is what Jesus continued to do and teach. As you go through this book, you're going to see the fulfillment, at least the beginning of it, of Jesus' promise that he would build his church and the gates of Hades would not be able to prevail against it. As you go through the book of Acts, that's what you're going to see. You're going to see Jesus building his church. You're going to see him give instructions to his apostles right before his ascension. You're going to see the apostles appeal to the Lord to select a 12th apostle to replace Judas. You're going to hear Peter on the day of Pentecost say that Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. You're going to see in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, that the Lord was adding to the church daily those who are being saved. You're going to see the Lord Jesus receive Stephen as the first martyr of the church. You're going to see Jesus apprehend the apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. You're going to see Jesus appear to Ananias. You're going to see that the Lord... And the implication is the Lord Jesus opens Lydia's heart to receive the things spoken of by Paul over and over again in the book of Acts. You're going to see Jesus continue to do and teach. He's going to do. He's going to save. He's going to heal. In Acts chapter 9, for instance, there's a man who is bedridden and paralyzed for eight years. And God uses Peter to heal this man. And Peter tells this man, Jesus Christ heals you. You're going to see as the apostles preach and teach, as they're carried along by the Holy Spirit, the book of Acts is the record of what Jesus continued to do and teach. And I just want to encourage you, I want to remind you that the Lord Jesus is continuing to build His church right now. In that sense, although the apostolic age has concluded, in that sense the book of Acts continues. In the sense that Jesus is continuing to build His church and nothing can stop Him from doing that. Totalitarianism cannot stop him from doing that. Calling biblical truth hate speech cannot stop him from doing that. Jihad cannot stop him from doing that. Transhumanism can't stop him from doing that. The Great Reset can't stop him from doing that. Government and corporate corruption can't stop him from doing that. Medical tyranny can't stop him from doing that. Devaluing a currency can't stop him from doing that. Plunging nations into battle with one another can't stop him from doing that. Nothing can stop Jesus from doing that. 
I thought of Nehemiah when Nehemiah was building the wall and his enemies tried to get him to come down from building the wall, not because they wanted to hang out with him, though they kind of postured it like that. Like, come, hang out with us. We just want to spend some time with you when really they wanted to kill him. And what did Nehemiah say? What did Nehemiah say to the messengers of his enemies that came to him? He said, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? And so the Lord Jesus will not stop from building his church. Roman persecution couldn't stop it. Jewish persecution in the first century couldn't stop it. Nothing can stop it. There may be a lot of things that go on in our world that are uncomfortable. There may be a lot of things that go on in nations, even our nation, that make life more difficult, life less enjoyable. Doubtless those things. Things that cost people their lives in this nation and in other nations. Yes, those things will happen. But I just want you to have this resolute, unwavering truth in your mind and in your heart that nothing can stop the Lord Jesus. He will build his church. He is, and he will do it until it's complete. Until he brings every one of his last sheep into that sheepfold, he will continue to build his church. Quick note, still in that language there, all that Jesus began to do and teach. If you were to go back to the book of Luke, you would see, I think very interestingly, that both went hand in hand, what Jesus did and what Jesus taught. And both set Jesus apart. I won't go through all the examples, but you'd see that when you hear Jesus teaching in those gospel accounts, that people are saying things like, no one ever spoke like this. He speaks as one who has authority. This is different. Like, he doesn't have to quote rabbis to make his point. He just speaks as one who has authority. But then you'll notice that his authority and the authority with which he spoke was backed up by the authority that he displayed in, say, healing. Take up your mat and walk commanding unclean spirits to come out of individuals. So what he did was a witness to the truthfulness of what he said. And what he did and the miracles that he did was a witness to who he was. The miracles that Jesus did bore witness of who he was, all that he began to do and teach. Just as a quick note, you go through the historical accounts in the Gospels and you find that even his enemies didn't argue that he did miraculous works. They just argued that it wasn't by God. Like you'd see in the gospel accounts, they'd say, okay, he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. But they weren't arguing that he cast out demons. They're like, okay, he's doing it. Even the Pharisees said, and you see this in John chapter 11, verse 47, for this man works many signs. I'd say to anyone who takes issue and wants to challenge the miracles that Jesus did to take the challenge that J.C. Ryle put forward. He said, if you can disprove the Lord's greatest miracle, his resurrection you'll have an audience to consider what you have to say about miracles in general. And we'll get to that in a moment, the resurrection, because I think you'll come to find that doing that, trying to disprove the resurrection, is a task that is insurmountable, a task that cannot be achieved. Well, back to the text. Luke spoke of the former account, including all that Jesus began to do and teach. Then verse 2 reads, until the day in which he was taken up. After he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. So basically what's going on here in verse 2 is Luke is rounding out the summary of the former account. It chronicled Jesus' life until the day he was taken up. This is a reference to Jesus' ascension. Jesus didn't just vanish from before the eyes of his apostles. He was taken up before their eyes. They saw him ascend into the sky. More about that, Lord willing, next week when we study the ascension. You also notice here that this event happened 
after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. He told them, for instance, it wasn't limited to this, to wait in Jerusalem, to be endued with power from on high. Like That's the difference that the Holy Spirit makes. If they tried to do what you read in the book of Acts without waiting for the Holy Spirit, there would be nothing of what we see in the book of Acts. It's the Holy Spirit that makes the difference. But more about that when we get to that a little bit later on, um, Lord willing, next week. But he gave these commandments through the Holy Spirit, and that shouldn't be surprising. The same Jesus who was filled with the Holy Spirit, we saw that, the baptism of John. The same Jesus who ministered in the power of the Holy Spirit, who offered himself up through the Holy Spirit, was raised by the power of the Holy Spirit, gave commands to his apostles through the person and power of the Holy Spirit. Well, having referenced the apostles and those chosen by him, Luke continued saying this in verse 3. They were the ones who, verse 3, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. This is of tremendous importance. This sets the foundation for everything that they would do as you're going to see it in the book of Acts that Jesus presented himself alive to them. His post-resurrection ministry, if you will, to them, lasted for 40 days. Here's where you find out that it lasted for 40 days. He's presenting himself alive to them at intervals. He's showing them that he had risen from the dead. No wonder why the apostles were so resolute, purposeful, and unwavering in their proclamation of the resurrection. As you go through the book of Acts, you're going to see that as a main theme of their preaching. He's alive. He's alive. He's risen. He's risen indeed. That's the essence of their messages over and over again. And he prepared them for that very thing by presenting himself alive to them with many infallible proofs. See, they didn't hear these like occasional whisperings like in the corner of where they slept saying like, I'm alive, I'm alive. It wasn't like that. It wasn't like, you know, one of them said, you know, hey, I saw Jesus on a foggy day on the other side of the lake and I think it was him and I think he said I'm alive. It wasn't like that. They didn't need to borrow from some other world religions golden spectacles to make out what Jesus was saying or kind of like golden earbuds, so to speak. They didn't need those kind of things. It wasn't that one of them said, I went into a cave and I had this supposed encounter with Jesus and he gave me a whole bunch of revelation and here it is. No, he presented himself alive to the apostles and not just to the apostles, to the women, to the disciples, to many of them, even 500 people at one time. Many infallible proofs. Just if you were to walk through all the occasions in the scriptures of him presenting himself to people, you'd find there are so many. Presents himself to Mary Magdalene. The morning of the resurrection presents himself to the women as well as alive. You remember Matthew 28. They are going to bring word to the disciples that the tomb was empty and so on. And who do they meet on the road? They meet the risen Christ who says rejoice. And what do they do? Apparently they fell down at his feet because they held his feet and they worshipped him. You see that in Matthew chapter 28. Jesus appeared to two disciples, one of whom was named Cleopas, on the road to Emmaus. Jesus appeared to his disciples minus Thomas on Resurrection Sunday evening. And it wasn't just him. The women were there also. Other disciples like Cleopas were there also. He appeared alive. And he also provided them in that occasion with infallible proofs of his resurrection. They they didn't know what to make of it. The doors are locked and all of a sudden there Jesus is. And he knew that they thought, okay, maybe this is like a spirit. Maybe this is an apparition. 
And he told him, touch me. You can see that a spirit does not have flesh and bones like I have. And he saw that they still weren't getting it. They still weren't believing for joy at that point. So he says, do you have any food? And then he ate some broiled fish in their presence. Maybe some honeycomb, according to later manuscripts as well. But then you see also, you go on, next Resurrection Sunday, a week from Resurrection Sunday, you'll see on the next first day of the week, he appears to them again, only this time Thomas is there. And he offers Thomas an opportunity to touch him as well. He wasn't an apparition. He wasn't some sort of disembodied spirit. He was the resurrected Christ. You'd see that he appeared to seven disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. You'd see that he appeared privately to Peter. He appeared privately to James. You'd see that he appeared to 500 people at one time. And then he ascended before their eyes at the Mount of Olives. He provided them with many infallible proofs. Even as he told Thomas, so I encourage you, do not be unbelieving, but be believing. If you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, trust me, in light of God's word, your faith is well-founded. You could hear that argued from somebody like Lee Strobel. He was the investigative journalist who thought that he had to liberate his wife from her newfound Christian faith. And so to do that, he wanted to put his journalistic background and his legal background to work in a task that he thought, at least according to one interview, he said he thought it would take a weekend to disprove the resurrection. He said, working for the Chicago Tribune, I've seen a lot of dead bodies and I've never seen one of them come back to life. He's like, I think this will take about a weekend. And what he came to find is that the evidence for the resurrection is insurmountable. And that man who was an atheist, in light of his investigation, and of course the work of the Holy Spirit, became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You'd see, if you'd hear his testimony, he calls attention to some of the things that he saw. I'll give attention to four of those things that he calls attention to. He saw that the evidence from both the New Testament and extra-biblical sources unmistakably declared that Jesus had died. People died during Roman execution via crucifixion. Jesus didn't swoon. It wasn't that he fainted and all of a sudden he just woke up later in the tomb and then somehow managed to come out. He says the evidence of both internal evidence within the scriptures and extra biblical writers all affirm, even references how an atheist said, it's an unmistakable historical fact that Jesus indeed died. But then he speaks about how the account of the resurrection wasn't the result of a legend that emerged over time. He said that he thought, you know, it was probably just, you know, not what Jesus' early followers believed, that he rose from the dead. This was probably something that just emerged over time. You had later people kind of impugning upon the past their thoughts, saying he resurrected when the early followers of Christ never believed that. And he said, when you evaluate the evidence, you could find that this is a newsflash that goes right back to the beginning. You could argue that in many ways. One of the ways to argue that is by what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. He declared that he had declared to them what he had received, that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Follow me for a moment. If 1 Corinthians was written around 51 to 54 AD, somewhere around that point of time, that means that the Apostle Paul communicated that truth to them when he was with them at an earlier time. So now we're getting even closer to when Jesus was resurrected from the dead. 
But if Paul communicated that to them, and you know that Paul was a, was a latecomer, if you will, to the reality of the resurrection, that means that even earlier Christians believed that Jesus died for their sins and had risen from the grave. And that's just based upon one piece of evidence, not to mention the eyewitness accounts that we're going to speak of in a moment that go right back to Resurrection Sunday. Then he also argued, which I think is a great place to spend some time, he also argued that the tomb was actually empty. Wanted to find that out. Was it actually empty? Was the tomb actually empty? And he said this was a pretty easy one to address because you'd find that even Jesus' enemies didn't dismiss that it was empty. They just said that the disciples stole the body. We'll come to the lunacy of that in a moment. But let's just rule out the other options here. Would the Romans have taken the body? Why would the Romans want to steal a dead body? Those Roman guards who had much at stake, if they were not to guard the tomb rightly, why would they want that body to be stolen? They wouldn't. Why would the Jewish leadership want the body to be stolen? They wouldn't. They wanted that Jesus movement to end right there. That's why they had the Roman guards guard the tomb. But what about the disciples? The disciples did not have the means nor the desire to pull off some sort of special ops mission while Roman soldiers were guarding the tomb so that they can get past them somehow, move a stone, all so that they could rescue a corpse and then be brutally murdered for proclaiming that the corpse was actually alive. There's no, there's no logic to that. Why in the world would they do that? And there's no evidence that they ever recanted or turned away from the proclamation of the resurrection. The most logical conclusion when you look at all of the options and the evidence is that the tomb was empty because Jesus rose from the grave. You go through the options. What other options are there? Those are the options. And then finally, he noticed that there was overwhelming evidence that people actually did see Jesus alive. Eyewitness accounts. Eyewitness accounts. I'll just go through three of them, for instance, for you. You think about 500 people seeing Jesus at one time. Wasn't disputed. Paul wrote it. There were no arguments in that first century saying, that's actually not true. 500 people didn't see him at one time. No, it was openly declared and accepted that 500 people had seen Jesus at one time. So you can't say that they all hallucinated. You can say maybe one person hallucinated and thought that he saw Jesus resurrected, but he actually didn't. He was just kind of out of his mind. But 500 people all having the same hallucination seems highly improbable, to put it likely. How else do you explain the turnaround of Saul of Tarsus? Saul of Tarsus was a man who was going full speed in the opposite direction of what we we're going to see him go in later on in the book of Acts. He was persecuting the church. He said he persecuted that way to the death. But then all of a sudden... There's a turnaround. What explains the turnaround? Did he become rich for following Jesus? No. Did he become more comfortable, more prestigious for following Jesus? No. Look at 2 Corinthians, and you'll find that he was persecuted over and over again. In the book of Acts, we're going to see him chased from city to city. What explains the turnaround in this man, Saul of Tarsus, who becomes the Apostle Paul? The only explanation that makes any sense is what he says, that he saw the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. And what about the apostles? Those who were so fearful but yet would go on and give their lives. The only one whose martyrdom is in question is perhaps John, but otherwise, they would all give their lives for the resurrected Christ, proclaiming his resurrection and not recanting even to the point of death. Even to the point of death. The lives that they lived, the witnesses that they were, the suffering that they endured, all demonstrates the power that comes through spirit-wrought believing in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Back to the text as we prepare to close. 
Jesus presented himself alive. You see this in verse 3 over the course of 40 days. 40 days is a number with quite a bit of significance in biblical history, or quite a bit of reference anyway, even though the significance is um, disputed and not clearly revealed. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights during the flood. The Israelites spied out the land of Canaan for 40 days. More examples could be given. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days before his earthly ministry. And the apostles had a time not of temptation, but a time of preparation. Forty days with Jesus appearing to them at intervals, speaking to them of things pertaining to the kingdom of God, presenting himself alive to them with many infallible proofs so that their confidence in the resurrection would be so well-grounded and well-rooted that they'd be able to keep proclaiming it despite the fact that they would give their lives for it. We also see that this was a time of instruction. Jesus instructed his apostles concerning the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. That's a big topic right there. When you look at a subject like this and you go through the Gospels and the book of Acts and you say, well, what, is, what, is, what concerns that explanation, that instruction about the kingdom of God? I want to boil it down to you to essentially three things. When we're told here that Jesus spoke to them and taught them about things pertaining to the kingdom of God, essentially that refers to understanding who Jesus Christ is. You'll see that in the book of Acts. You'll see that when the kingdom of God is referenced, Explaining who Jesus Christ is, is connected to that. You'll see that in Acts chapter 8, verse 12, Acts chapter 28, verse 23, and verse 31. So the kingdom of God is connected to the king of the kingdom, the Lord Jesus Christ. To understand the kingdom of God, you have to understand who Jesus is and his relationship to that kingdom. You go through the book of Acts and you also see that the kingdom of God is the place where believers are headed. In Acts 14, 22, for instance... Paul is encouraging believers to know that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So it concerns Christ. It's the place that believers are entering into ultimately. And also the kingdom of God concerns the advancement of God's rule in and among the lives of his people in this age, as well as the blessedness associated with that rule. You can see that in Romans 14, 17. So Jesus taught them about these things, and they were to be his witnesses of these things throughout the world, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So this prologue, verses 1 through 3, is in large measure the basis for all of the ministry that follows in the book of Acts. Jesus rose. The disciples knew it. And an ample portion of their eyewitness experience has been handed down to us. Spurgeon said that, The resurrection is, quote, the best attested of all historical facts. He would go on and he would say, there is not half as much reason to be sure that Napoleon Bonaparte was ever taken to St. Helena as to believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. So the question is, will it compel you even as it compelled them? You look at the way this truth compelled them. Will it compel you in some similar way? Jesus told Thomas in John chapter 20, verse 27, do not be unbelieving, but believing. See, doubt in this truth, if you come to this truth and you come to a Resurrection Sunday and you say, I'm just not sure. I'm just not sure. I want to play it safe. I'm not sure about that. I don't know if I want to put all my eggs in that basket. (laughs) You know, that kind of doubt in this truth, it can masquerade itself as a life jacket. 
keeping you open to all views and tethered to none as though commitment to one truth is dangerous, but openness to all is life. The reality is, it's not a life jacket, that kind of doubt. It's actually a weight vest. To hold on to that doubt is to drag yourself, is to be dragged down to the bottom of perdition. I want to encourage you, by the grace of God, lay aside such doubt and receive life. You do want to put all of your eggs in the basket of believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died for your sins and rose from the grave. And I want to remind you, on a day like today, right, where many people are going around and many people are recognizing that it's Easter and many people will provide a little bit of a tip of the cap, a little bit of simple assent to the Christian faith, I just want to remind you, doubtless, there are plenty of people who are in hell awaiting sentencing in the lake of fire who have paid much respect to the religious holiday of Easter but have not placed saving faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ and His resurrection. May it not be you. May today, by the grace of God, be a new beginning as you believe, perhaps for the first time, that Jesus' resurrection was the proof that the sacrifice of sins that He suffered on the cross was the payment that that He suffered for your sins. May today be the day that's a new beginning for you. See Jesus as the object of faith. Your faith is to be in Him. You say, He is my Savior. He is the Son of God. But true faith follows the Lord that is the object of faith. Say, how do I know? How do I know if I'm actually a believer? You will follow Christ. You're not saved by your following, but your following evidences your faith. Your following evidences your believing. How could you not follow Him? If you believe that He suffered and He absorbed the wrath of God, what you and I would spend eternity in hell paying for and never satisfying, He satisfied with one all-sufficient offering. How could you not follow Him? And then He rose from the grave. He provides these proofs for His apostles and disciples and they're they're passed down to us so that we can know He rose from the grave. This isn't some mysterious, esoteric thing. This is rooted in history. It's rooted in historical evidence in the Bible, outside of the Bible, and He's provided that for you. Why would you dismiss it? Why would you look past it? Do not be unbelieving, but be believing. Your life can change today. All of the sins that you've committed, all the things that you're embarrassed about, all the things you wish you had never done, all the things that you will do, you can be forgiven in the blink of an eye as you, by the grace of God, trust in Jesus Christ and your sins are forgiven. You say, I repent. I'm turning around. I'm not living my life for myself. I'm not going to be committed to my sins. I'm going to be committed to Jesus Christ. And today is your spiritual resurrection, if you will. It's a new beginning. And you begin to follow Him in newness of life. You don't have to be who you've been. You don't have to carry the sins that you've committed. You can have this great confidence that they've all been paid for. You look at the resurrection and you see it through a new light. You're like, okay, He died for my sins. My sins were placed upon Him at the cross. And I was crucified with Christ. And it's like the old me that did all that stuff that I hate, buried with Him. Paid for on the cross, buried with him. And then by the grace of God, when you get baptized and you communicate your faith publicly, it's as though symbolized right there in your baptism. You say, I rose up together with him in newness of life. I died with him. I was crucified with him. My old self, my old me, my sins were buried. And in newness of life, he raised me up. And you begin to walk, not in perfection, but you've got a new pattern. 
You start walking after the Savior and following the Savior who loved you and died for you. And no, you're not going to be perfect. And no, you're still going to continue to sin. You are. But there's a different trajectory in your life now. There's someone else who's on the throne. You just had self-evacuated, removed, deposed. And by the grace of God, Christ is on the seat of authority in your life. And he directs you. You look in the book of Acts and you'll see at the early church, you'll see this really in Acts chapter 2, a little bit later on in our study, that what happened as a result of their lives being changed when this gospel was proclaimed, they committed themselves to his truth. They're like, I want it. I'm going to dive into it. I'm diving into the apostles' doctrine. They also committed themselves to gather together as a church. They committed, committed to fellowship. They committed themselves to the Lord's table. They said, I'm going to gather with other believers and we're going to break bread. We're going to eat together, but we're also going to remember the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. We are going to gather together and corporately we're going to remember the Lord's table. We're going to have bread that represents his body. We're going to have the fruit of the vine that represents his blood. We're going to drink it from a cup that represents a new covenant. And we're going to do that together. As often as we do it, we're going to proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And they said, we're going to pray together. We're going to gather together and we're going to pray. Doubtless they were going to pray privately, but they were going to pray together corporately. That's the impact that the gospel is meant to have. Don't lose sight of that. It's not just a simple ascent. Like, yes, I believe that. But if you really do believe that, this is the direction your life is going to be carried in. That's the headwind. That's where you're going. You're going to say, how do I know if I've actually been compelled by Christ? Get ready. That's the headwind. You're going to be committed to his truth. You're going to be committed to fellowship. You're going to love the Lord's table. And you're going to be committed to prayer, both privately and publicly. It's going to be part of what happens to you. Because you've experienced newness of life in Jesus Christ. So even as the resurrection and the proofs of it were the basis of what follows for the apostles in the book of Acts, may the resurrection and the proofs of it be the basis of the fresh work that God's going to do in your life. Beginning perhaps this day on Resurrection Sunday. Let's go to our Lord together in prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you for all that Jesus began both to do and teach as it's recorded in the Gospel of Luke. And thank you for all that Jesus Christ is continuing to do and teach through his spirit and through his word and through his church. Thank you, Lord. Father, we pray that he would continue to add to the church those who are being saved and perhaps, Heavenly Father, even in our midst, Lord, that you would grant us such an honor to see that. We pray, Heavenly Father, that even this day, for those who believe the resurrection, we pray that their faith would be strengthened by your grace, that those roots would go down even deeper, and there'd be a fresh grace-wrought compulsion to magnify Christ and to make known his resurrection and the implications of it. Father, for those, Lord, who perhaps even in this time have gone from unbelieving to believing, Lord, Oh, Father, may today be a new start for them. The first steps of a beautiful journey walking alongside of the Lord Jesus Christ. And although by no means easy, it is nonetheless blessed to walk hand in hand with the creator of the universe and the Savior who loved us and gave himself for us. Thank you that Jesus was delivered up for our offenses. Thank you that he was raised for our justification. Thank you that we are begotten again, not by works that we've done, but by your grace and through the resurrection from the dead. Thank you that because Jesus Christ has died and rose from the grave, we are not still in our sins. Thank you that he is the first fruits 
of the resurrection that awaits all who believe in him for the forgiveness of sins. And that one day, this mortal will put on immortality. This perishable frame will put on imperishable. Thank you, Lord, for what Jesus Christ has done and secured for us. And we pray that the truth of that work would continue to ripple through this church, Lord, in this building, Lord, and beyond this building for your glory and for the advancement of your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.